Chapter 16, November 7th. Mrs. Nesbitt died. I don't know when, but she was in bed, and I like to think she died in her sleep. Her eyes were closed, and she looked peaceful. I kissed her cheek and covered her face with her top sheet. I sat silently by her for a while, mostly to see if, any, if I was going to cry, but I didn't. I knew I couldn't sit there forever, no matter how peaceful it was. I knew she wanted us to have everything, but I made a point of taking her diamond pendant and ruby brooch first. Then I went downstairs and took the two paintings off the wall. She wanted Matt and Johnny to have. I piled all the things next to the kitchen table and tried to decide what to look at next. What I really wanted to do was go through their kitchen cabinets and see if she had any food left, but the very thought of it made me excited, and that didn't seem like the proper way to feel. It made me feel like a cannibal. So I found a flashlight and started with the attic. I didn't know what I was going to find there, but Mrs. Nesbitt had told me to go from the attic to the cellar, and I had no desire to go to the cellar. The attic was filled with boxes and trunks. It was ice cold in there, and I knew I didn't have the energy to go through every single one of them, so I hopped from box to box. There was lots of old clothes, which I didn't think would be any helpful to us. There were also boxes of papers, accounts from Mrs. Nesbitt's business. I opened a box called Bobby's Things and found something great in there. Most of the stuff was from school, papers he'd written and the letters he'd gotten from being on the school basketball team. But toward the bottom, I found a shoebox filled with old baseball cards. I thought about how John hadn't gotten a birthday present, and I clutched that shoebox. I'd surprise him with it at Christmas, or before Christmas, if I don't think we'll make it that long. I went downstairs then and walked, down, walked through the bedrooms and looked in the closets. There were clean towels and washcloths, and Mrs. Nesmith must not have used. Clean sheets and blankets and quilts. No matter how warm we might be in the sunroom, extra blankets seemed like a good idea. There were boxes of tissues I knew we could use, and rolls of toilet paper, aspirin, and painkillers. Cold remedies. I took a clean pillowcase and started putting stuff in there, starting with the baseball cards. I didn't put any of the blankets in there, but I did throw in some of the towels and washcloths. There was really wasn't any logic to what I put in and what I left out. I'd be sending Matt over to fill the car, and he would pick up anything I would forgot to take. Then I allowed myself to go to the kitchen. I opened the cabinets and saw cans of soup and vegetables and tuna and chicken, all the stuff we'd been eating for months now. There wasn't enough of us for us to eat three meals a day, but every can would help keep us alive a little longer. I knew without ever tell, telling me that Mrs. Nesbitt had been going hungry so we could have the food. I thanked her silently and kept looking. In the back of one of the cabinets, I found a box of chocolates, unopened with a Happy Mother's Day card attached. Mrs. Nesbitt never was one for chocolate. You would have thought her son knew that. I took the chocolate and put it in the bottom of the pillowcase along with the baseball cards. I couldn't decide whether to give it to Mom at Christmas or on her birthday. Then I realized there was a funny noise in the back of me. I turned around and saw the kitchen faucet was dripping. I grabbed a pot and put it under the faucet and turned it on. Actual water poured out. Mrs. Nesbitt's well hadn't run dry. There was only one of her, and she hadn't used up all her water. Her insistence on keeping the heat on had prevented the pipes from freezing. I grabbed a lot of the cans and opened boxes of raisin and rammed them into the pillowcases. Then I went through the entire house, top to bottom, looking for containers for the water. Everything I found that could possibly hold water, bottles and jugs and canisters and barrels, I dragged to the kitchen and filled them all just for the joy of hearing the running water. I was tempted to pour myself a glass of water and drink it, but even though the water was probably clean, I knew it should be boiled first. But then I thought to look in Mrs. Nesbitt's refrigerator. Sure enough, she'd been using it for a storage space, and there was untouched box six-pack of bottled water. I let myself drink one. It was all I could do to keep from gulping it down in three giant swallows. But I sipped it and said, like a fine wine. It's funny, all the food there, and I wasn't tempted by any of it, but I couldn't resist the water. Then, just because I could, I took a washcloth, damped it with the sink water, and washed my face and hands. Soon I took off all my clothes and gave myself a sponge bath. 
The water was cold and kitchen wasn't much warmer, but it was glorious feeling clean again. I got back into my dirty clothes and slipped the five bottles of water, drinking water into what I was starting to think of as my Santa bag and realized I couldn't carry much more. There was no way I could manage to take the paintings, but I did put the two pieces of jewelry in my pants pocket. I heated the bag over my shoulders and went to the kitchen door. I've been altering between walking on the road and through the backwoods to get to Mrs. Nesbitt's, so I knew no one would think it suspicious if they didn't see me on the road. I only hoped no one would see me in the woods, since if they saw the Santa bag, they'd know right away I'd be taking things from Mrs. Nesbitt's house. And if anyone got there before Matt, we'd lose the food, the water, everything. I walked as fast as I could, cursing myself for having filled the pillowcase with so much stuff. It was one of the non-brunch days and I was hungry. The water gurgled in my stomach. I spotted Matt and John chopping away. They'd cut firewood for Mrs. Nesbitt, I remembered. More stuff for them to take from her house. For a moment, I was torn between speaking to them while I was still holding onto the bag or going to the house to drop the bag off and then going to talk to them. But I'd have to tell Mom if she saw me carrying stuff in. And I was just as happy to postpone that. So I positioned myself with the bag behind a tree just in case someone could see me talking to Matt and John. Mrs. Nesbitt died, I whispered. She told me a few days ago to take everything we could use. She still has running water. Her car has little gas in it. Where is she, Johnny said. She's in her bed, I said. Peter told her the hospital was taking bodies, and she said she would bring her. She would should bring her there if it was the easiest for us. We had a long talk about things a few days ago. Do I have to do that, Johnny asked. Do I have to go in? No, Matt said. But you have to help us bring stuff over. There's a wheelbarrow in the garage. We can fill it with firewood for you to take back here. Miranda, would you mind going back in? No, of course not, I said. Okay, then, he said. We'll strip the house. Do you have any idea how to drive? The gas pedal makes it go, and the brakes make it stop, I said. Matt grinned. You'll be fine, he said. We'll drive the van there, and we'll bring all our empty bottles and jugs so we can fill them with water. We'll load things up, and I'll drive the van back, and you'll drive Mrs. Nesbitt's car. Then I'll go back and get Mrs. Nesbitt and take her to the hospital. By the time I get back, the house will be ransacked, but we'll have gotten everything we can out of there. When you go back for Mrs. Nesbitt, fill the car up again, I said. Honestly, she wouldn't mind. Okay, Matt said. Take the bag in, in and tell Mom. John, come with me. Let's get water containers. So we all went back to the house. Mom was sitting on her mattress, staring at the fire. She heard me come in. Where did you get that, she said. It's Mrs. Nesbitt, I said. Mom, I'm sorry. It took her a moment to realize what I was saying. Then she did a, a, took a deep breath. Was it peaceful, she asked. Could you tell? She died in her sleep, I said, just the way she wanted. Well, that's the best we can hope for, Mom said. When we got Mrs. Nesbitt's, got to Mrs. Nesbitt's, Johnny stayed outside and loaded the wheelbarrow with firewood. Matt and I went inside. Matt filled all the containers we brought with water, and I packed up the blankets and towels and sheets and food and the photo albums and the two paintings. While we were in the kitchen, John raced in. He found two barrels in the garage and a couple of plastic recycling bins and a heavy garbage pail. The garbage pail weighed so much when we filled it with water that it took all three of us to lift it into the van. Johnny and I managed the recycling bins together. We did everything as quietly as we could, but of course, if anyone heard the car motor, they'd know something was up. The rule is family first, and Matt said everyone thought of us as Mrs. Nesbitt's family, so we should be okay. But it was still scary until we got both cars loaded and both engines running. Then, of course, I had to dri drive down the driveway onto the road and up our driveway to the sunroom door. The important thing I kept telling myself was not to panic. There was no cars on the road, so I wasn't going to hit anybody. It was more a question of whether I'd hit a tree. I kept my hands locked on the steering wheel and drove about five miles an hour. The whole trip couldn't have taken more than five minutes, but it felt like an eternity. If I was the nervous driving, I knew I wasn't ready to die. John arrived with a wheelbarrow, which he left in our garage, 
Then he and Matt unloaded the cars. We put everything in the kitchen to go through later. I thought Mom was going to cry when she saw the water. Matt asked me if I wanted to go back with him and bring Mrs. Nesk to the hospital before I had a chance to agree. Mom said no. Miranda's done enough, she said. Johnny, go with your brother. Mom, Johnny said. You heard me, Mom said. You say you want to be treated like an adult, then behave like one. Miranda said her goodbyes to Mrs. Nesbitt. Mine too, I'm sure. It's your turn to do so, and I expect that you will. Okay, Johnny said. He sounded so young. I wanted to hug him. This is going to take a while, Matt said. Don't open the door while we're gone. You should be fine, but don't take any chances. We'll be safe, Mom said. Be careful. I love you both. After they left, I made Mom drink one of the bottles of water. Then I sat with her and told her about the conversation I had with Mrs. Nesbitt. I pulled the pendant out of the sand bag and handed it to her. It was her 50th birthday present, Mom said. Her husband gave it to her. There was a big surprise party, and I think she was genuinely surprised. Bobby brought Sally home for the party, so we all knew it was serious. They got married later that year. She told me to give a few of the photo albums, I said. I bet there are pictures from the party. Oh, I'm sure there are, Mom said. Here, help me with the clasp. I think she'd like to know I'm wearing the pendant. I helped Mom with it, on with it. She's gotten so thin I could see her shoulder blades. She gave me this brooch, I said, showing it to Mom. She loved that brooch, Mom said. It was her grandmother's. Cherish it, Miranda. That's a very special gift. Then I went back to work. The bottles and jugs got moved to the kitchen. I put the food in the pantry. Then I changed Mom's sheets. I took a pot, filled it with water, and after it had heated up, I helped Mom shampoo her hair. I hid the baseball cards and the chocolates and put everything else away. Matt and John got home around supper time. They had seen Peter, and there was no problem with the hospital taking Mrs. Desbitt. Then we ate tuna and red beans and pineapple chunks, and we toasted the best friends we'll ever have. November 8th. Mom hobbled her way, which she probably shouldn't have done, into the pantry this afternoon. Matt and Johnny were doing their wood chopping things. I left Mom alone in the pantry for a while. I'm losing all sense of time, but then I figured I'd better make sure she hadn't fallen. So I went to the pantry and found her sitting on the floor weeping. I put my arm around her shoulder and let her cry. After a while, she calmed down, and then she embraced me. I helped her up, and she leaned on me as we went back to the sunroom. I have never loved Mom as much as I love her now. I almost feel like some of Mrs. Nesbitt's love for Mom has seeped into me. November 10th. Peter came over this afternoon. Each time I see him, he looks five years older. He didn't talk much to us. He just lifted Mom off her mattress blankets and all and carried her into the living room. They stayed there a long time. Matt and John came in while they were there, and we all whispered so Mom wouldn't be disturbed by the sounds of our voices. When they came back into the sunroom, Peter put Mom down so gently on her mattress I almost wept. There was so much love and kindness in that gesture. Peter told us to take care of Mom and make sure she doesn't try to do too much. We promised we would. I wonder if Dad was ever this gentle with Mom. I wonder if he's this gentle now with Lisa. November 11th, Veterans Day, a national holiday. Matt stayed home from the post office. I think this is the funniest thing ever. November 15th, I went to my bedroom to look for cleaner socks. And while I was up there, I decided to weigh myself. I had an, on an, a fair number of layers of clothes. Even though we have the wood stove going day and night, the sides of the sunroom don't get too warm. And of course, leaving the sunroom to go to the pantry or the kitchen or upstairs is like hiking to the North Pole. You just you don't just stroll there in a bikini. I had my underwear and my long johns. Sometimes I remember how upset I was when Mom thought them last spring. Now I thank her over and over, at least in my mind. And jeans and sweatpants and two shirts and a sweatshirt and a winter coat and two pairs of socks and shoes. I don't bother with a scarf, but I kept my gloves in my pocket because I knew I wasn't going to be upstairs too long. For the great way in, 
I took off my shoes and my coat. According to the scale, my clothes and I weighed 96 pounds. I don't think that's too bad. Nobody starves to death at 96 pounds. I weighed 118 last spring. My real concern is how much muscle I've lost. I was in good shape from all the swimming, and now I don't do any ex ex except carry firewood and shiver. I'd like to go back to the pond and do some more skating, but I feel guilty leaving a mom alone. When I left her alone to visit Mrs. Nesbitt, I was doing something for someone else. The skating would just be for me, and I can't justify that. Matt and John are both thin, but they look like they're pure muscle. Mom looks skinny and sickly. She's been eating less than the rest of us for a while now, but she also started out weighing more, so I don't think she's at starvation level either. We have food, but we're so careful with it. Who knows when we'll get any more. Even Peter doesn't bring us anything when he visits. Thanksgiving is next week. I wonder if we'll have anything to be thankful for. November 18th. Matt came flying home from the post office today. There was a letter from Dad. The only problem was the letter was sent before the other one. I guess he wrote a letter between the two we'd already gotten. This one was from Ohio. It didn't say much, just that he, w he and Lisa were doing well, and so far they had enough gas and food and camping out was fun. They met lots of other families who were also going south or west, and he'd even run into someone he'd known in college. Lisa threw in a PS to say she f could feel the baby move. She was sure it was a boy, but Dad was equally sure it was a girl. It was so strange getting that letter. I couldn't understand why Matt was so happy. It wasn't like there was any news in it, since we know Dad and Lisa made it further west than that. But Matt did said it means mail is still traveling and is totally unpredictable, so a newer letter from Dad could arrive at any time. Sometimes I feel like I miss Dad and Sammy and Dan more than I miss Megan and Mrs. Nesbitt. They all deserted me, but I can't blame Megan or Mrs. Nesbitt for not writing. I know I can't blame Dad or Sammy or Dan either, or I shouldn't blame them, which is more accurate. I have no privacy, but I feel so alone. November 20th. It was minus 10 when I went out with the bedpan. I'm pretty sure that was early afternoon. Matt keeps chopping wood. There's already too much for the dining room, so he started piling in the living room. I wonder if we'll have any trees left by the time winter ends, if it ends. We still have water, but we ration it. Thanksgiving. Even Mom didn't pretend we had anything to be thankful for. November 25th. Matt came home today from the post office with two special treats. One was Peter. The other was a chicken. It wasn't all that much of a chicken, maybe a little bigger than a Cornish hen, but it was dead and plucked and ready for cooking. I guess Matt knew he'd be getting it and had arranged for Peter to join us in our day after Thanksgiving feast. There was a moment when I thought about where the chicken had come from and that Matt must have given up for must have given up for us to have it. But then I decided the hell with it. It was chicken. A real honest to goodness not from a canned chicken. And I'd be a fool to look a gift chicken in the mouth. No matter what Matt might have given up for the chicken, it would have been worth it for the look in Mom's eyes when she saw it. She looked happier than she has in weeks. Since the only way we can cook is on top of the wood stove, we were kind of limited, but we put the chicken in a pot with a can of chicken broth, salt and pepper and rosemary and tarragon. Just the smell of it was heaven. We made rice and string beans, too. It was a wonderful beyond description. I'd forgotten what actual chicken tastes like. I think we each could have eaten the entire chicken, but we shared it very civilly. I had a leg and two bites of thigh. Peter and John broke the wishbone. John won, but it didn't matter since we all have the same wish. November 26. I guess the chicken really revitalized Mom because today she decided we were all wasting our lives and that had to stop. Of course it's true, but it's still pretty funny that Mom felt the need to make a big deal out of it. 
Have any of you done a bit of schoolwork all fall? She asked. You too, Matt. Have you? Well, of course not. We tried to look shamefaced. Bad us for not doing our algebra when the world is coming to an end. I don't care what you study, Mom said, but you have to study something. Pick one subject and work on that. I want to see open school books. I want to see some learning going on here. I absolutely refuse to study French, I said. I'll never go to France. I'll never meet anyone from France. For all we know, there isn't a France anymore. So don't study French, Mom said. Study history. We may not have a future, but you can't deny we have a past. That was the first time I ever heard Mom say that about the future. It shocked any possible fight out of me. So I picked history as my subject. John picked algebra, and Matt said he'd help him with it. Matt admitted he'd been wanting to read some philosophy, and Mom said if I wasn't going to use my French textbook, she would. I don't know how long this burst of studying is going to last, but I understand Mom's point. The other night I dreamed that I found myself in school for a final, and not only hadn't I been in class to d and didn't know anything, but the school was just the way it had been, and everybody there was normal-looking, and I was dressed in layers of clothes and hadn't washed in days, and everyone stared at me like I was a drop-in from hell. At least now it's a history test. I'll have a fighting chance of knowing some of the answers. November 30th. There's nothing like schoolwork to make a person want to play hooky. I told Mom I wanted to go for a walk, and she said, Well, why don't you? You've been spending entirely too much time indoors. I love her, but I could throttle her. So I layered up and walked over to Mrs. Nesbitt's house. I don't know what I was looking for or what I was expecting to find, but the house had been ransacked since the day she died. That was to be expected. We'd taken everything we could use, but there was stuff like furniture that we didn't need and other people had taken for themselves. It felt funny walking around the empty house. It reminded me of Megan's house when I'd gone there, like the house itself was dead. After I'd walked around a while, I realized that I wanted to do was explore the attic. Maybe that hadn't been gone through, or at least not as thoroughly. And sure enough, even though all the boxes had been opened, contents pulled out, there was plenty of stuff left in there, and that's when I knew I was there looking for Christmas presents for Matt. John had the baseball cards, Mom had the box of chocolates, but I wanted Matt to have something too. Most of what was lying around on the floor was old linens, tablecloths, stuff like that. There was piles of old clothes too, nothing anyone could have found usable. When I'd gone through the attic the first time, it had been crowded with boxes, but everything was neatly packed away. Now it was chaos. Not that it mattered. I looked through piles of things, through boxes that had been gone through, but nothing taken out. And finally I found something I'd give to Matt. It was a dozen or so different colored pencils from an old color by number picture set. The pictures had been carefully colored in, but their backs were blank, so I decided to take them too. Back in high school, Matt had done some drawing. It, I wasn't sure he'd even remember it, but I did, because he did a sketch of me in a much better laid-back position than I'd ever really managed. Mom had loved it and wanted to hang it up, but it embarrassed me because I knew it wasn't really me, and I threw a tantrum until she gave up on the idea. I guess she kept the picture, but I don't know where she hid it. At some point, Matt's going to stop chopping firewood, and when he does, he can take up art again to go along with his philosophy studies. I went through the other stuff in the attic, but the pencils were definitely the high point, so I thanked Mrs. Nesbitt and went home. Just to be sneaky, I went in through the front door and took the color by number set up to my bedroom before returning to the sunroom. We may not have a chicken for Christmas dinner, but at least there'll be presents. December 1st. For the third straight day, the temperature was above zero this afternoon, so I took Mom's skates and went to the pond. There was no one there. I'm really starting to think that whole Brandon thing was a hallucination. In a funny way, it was better that I was alone, since I never am at home. Mom can definitely hobble around now, so I don't have to hover around her all the time, but it's way too cold in the house to spend much time any place but the sunroom. 
I skated around the pond, nothing fancy and incredibly slow. I had to be careful since there were chunks of ice missing. I guess people have been hacking away at it for water, the way we will once Mrs. Nesbitt's water runs out. The air is so bad I don't know how Matt and Johnny manage. I'd skate for a few minutes and then start coughing. I probably didn't skate for more than 15 minutes total, but I was exhausted by the time I finished, and it took most of my strength to get back home. Matt, Mom, and I are down to one meal a day, but at least we're eating seven days a week. And maybe the temperature really is warming up, and that'll make things better.